If you're a smoker or dipper looking to make a change, you really only need one reason to do it. But with Zen Nicotine Pouches, you can find many. Zen is America's number one nicotine pouch. It's made with only six simple ingredients. Plus, Zen is the only nicotine pouch with a 10-day hassle-free trial. There are lots of options when it comes to nicotine satisfaction, but there's only one Zen. Find your Zen online or in a store near you at zen.com slash find. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the final episode of 2022 for Off the Beat. This is Brian Baumgartner wishing all of you a happy new year. Today, I'm going to be continuing on last week's theme of best ofs, bringing you more of my favorite moments from almost a whole year of going off the beat. It's been quite a ride. I'm so glad that you have been with me every step of the way. And if you're new listeners, if you like what you're hearing last week and this week, please check us out. Subscribe in the new year. To kick us off, I'm going to start with a woman you may know as Nellie Bertram, but I know as my hilarious friend, Catherine Tate. Here she is making the very surprising claim that she wasn't always quite this outgoing. I was an incredibly shy child, really, really shy. So, I mean, talk about, you know, least expected to do anything, <laughs> let alone get up and make people laugh. That was That would have been me. You know, I mean, I... You know, I mean, I was painfully shy. So potentially, I suppose, if I was thinking about it, maybe I did find a route in with sort of making characters and, and, and doing sort of voices and becoming other than myself. But I definitely identified quite early on that a really good way of um, deterring bullies was to be able to make them laugh. Mm. and um, And that really emboldened me really because I'd, I'd I'd had a really unhappy stint at school at one of the Catholic school at one of the <laughs> convent schools I had a really unhappy stint there and I realized one day that actually if you can make them laugh they'll leave you alone right and and that's I think that's kind of where I I, I definitely honed it as a defense mechanism yeah so, so hiding in a way, still being shy, hiding in a way behind the characters that you created early on. I guess, although I, although I all, like, I didn't do characters or anything when I was a kid, right. uh, but I, 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 I learned a way of uh, making people laugh. You know, I learned right. to, I suppose, to to create the character of the of the of the of the comedian of the class clown. You know, or of the 
of, of the funny one and and it protected me i felt right so i uh, i came from theater myself i i never thought i would you know do film and television it, for me it was all about theater and and live performance and creating characters on stage you early on very prestigious in in britain in london uh you became a member of the National Youth Theatre. And I heard you auditioned four times. For drama school, I auditioned for four times, yeah. But no, National Youth Theatre, I, I, yeah, I was there with Daniel Craig. He was the shining light. Okay. When I was at, when I was at Youth Theatre. And I was, um, I was, I, when he was playing Leonardo, the lead in Blood Wedding, I was playing Girl One. So that was, <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, yeah, and things things blossomed from there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you must have had experiences though on on stage other than Girl One through your. How long were you there? Well, the thing is, we I was there for quite a few years, but we kept we kept doing, we kept churning out this same. The same play because I guess it had got a little bit of success. But I know we took it to Spain, we took it to the West End, we did it again in the West End, you know. And I think at some point, some I wasn't in this particular cast, but I think it then went went to Russia or something, you know. I mean, it, we really flogged this one, okay. and I, I just had a great time. I, I had I had a fantastic time, but I'd also sim, um, running concurrently with that. I joined another youth theatre in the east end of London, where I did get the chance to do lots of fun parts and, uh, you know, ha- had a little bit more to do than Girl One, yeah. Right. Um, and right. then by the time I got to Central, which was college, essentially, we all got our chance at doing leads and, and, and great parts, yeah. Did you think that theatre was what you were going to do? Or did you always have an idea of something else? No, I, I absolutely loved theatre. And my, my first job out of college actually was at the National Theatre. So having graduated from the Youth Theatre, I went to the actual National Theatre and stayed there about a year, I guess. And did, a, you know, did, did touring shows, uh, you know, like um, around the theatres doing... Oh, I, my first job was an Arthur Miller, was um, All My Sons. Oh, yeah. who did you play in All My Sons? The girl, the girl in it, you know, the... Yes. Um, Anne? Yeah. Yeah, Man. it was. I can't remember. It was a long time ago. I did Joe Keller twice, by the way. Sorry, it's about oh, me. You did. I did Joe Keller twice <laughs> as a much, much too young man. Yes, I did Joe Keller twice. Right, yes. right, right. Yes, I would say so. Uh, so yeah, I, I just didn't didn't occur to me. Even when we were at school, you know, at drama school, it was theatre that we were trained in. We you had a couple of a, a, a tiny smattering of film and television I mean as a novelty really I mean this is like 1994 or something it was still theatre was the thing that the school wanted to churn out theatre actors you know and I absolutely thought that would be what I what I did what I wanted to do but by the time I graduated the idea of repertory theatre just wasn't in the country anymore it was it had died down all Mm. the all the regional theatres all they did was receive the big touring productions touring on, a, on, a, on a weekly basing basically you know what I mean so yes that that was all I wanted to do I just thought oh my god I'll just go around doing plays all the time and and it didn't really it didn't really pan out like that right so what did so what did you do you graduate and you're like well that life that I thought that I had well I graduated and it all started off okay because I got I, I was I was at the national for a year only doing like small parts and understudying but you know what do you care you you know 25 who cares you know that's what, what you should be doing and then it my contract stopped and and I realized you know what I've got a feeling I just had this inkling that I needed to do stand-up because I needed to separate myself from the pack as it were if you're if you've just left drama college there's plenty of young 20 somethings you know who have who have just graduated when you have you know I had to do something that sort of um put put me in a different environment and and so I I just held my breath and jumped in and started doing stand-up and that was the best thing I've ever done because it that from there that was it. It it was the difference between waiting for the phone to ring 
from your agent going, oh, there's this this audition and picking up the phone and booking your own spots. You know, right. and I had a day job. I was working in an office, ironically. <laughs> and then and then after a few years, I was able to stop the day job and, and do, do stand up full time. But it was having that power, it was taking back that power and feeling you've got some agency over your career where, you know, as many actors, they, they don't. You know, they right. don't. You are, you are at the mercy of, of, the, of the casting call, aren't you? Yes. How, how was that experience for you? Terrifying? Was it exhilarating? Obviously, it's still in front of a live audience, so you have experience with that, but now yeah. they have to laugh, right? How, how was that experience for you? It was, it was all of those things. It was terrifying, exhilarating, it was like an out-of-body experience. I mean, if you analyse it, the, the act of doing stand-up, it's a preposterous idea and you'd never, you'd never suggest anyone does it and you certainly wouldn't do it for yourself. You know, the idea of, yes, I definitely had a bit of stagecraft. So when I, when I went out and did my first open spot, what do you call them open spots? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, open mic or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, open mic, exactly. It wasn't the first time I'd been in front of an audience, so I had that going for me. But even little simple things like I'd never held a microphone in my hand. Why, how, why would I? I worked in theatre. You, you didn't use a microphone. It was just like, what do you do with this? Oh, my God, what's this? You know, <laughs> and it was um, – it, it, but it dawned on me, I think, halfway through my sort of my little five-minute open spot – was this is ridiculous because not only am I asking people, not only are you expecting people to be quiet, you're asking them to listen and then laugh at what you say. <laughs> I mean, it's the, the, the notion is ridiculous if you if you if you analyze it. But I loved it. We love it too, Catherine. So there you go. That's my office connection for this episode. But my next guest has his own. Very strange office connection because I kid you not, he was once Ellie Kemper's high school teacher. Now, it is just really hard to imagine him being a teacher or Ellie being, being his student, being a student at all, I guess. Literally any part of this scenario happening in real life is shocking to me, but delightful now that I know that it's true. Here he is. Ellie Kemper's high school teacher. Oh, and Don Draper, John Ham. I have to go back on that for a second. You remember Ellie. Like you remember her as a student. Yeah. And her sister Carrie too. Yeah, of course. Of I course. remember all my kids like for, for the most part, but yeah, no, I definitely remember Ellie. She was, she was just a really hardworking, diligent, achievement oriented student. It was very, it was great. Like, honestly, as a teacher, you're like, those are the kids that you only want. Right. So when did you reconnect with her? Do you remember seeing her again or? Yes, I do. She, she went to college. That was five years later. And I was out here in LA. I'd probably been working. I'm not sure if I was on Mad Men by that point, but she, I remember emailed me and said, I'm coming out. I went to this and I did this and I've been doing this UCB and blah, blah, blah. And I'm coming out and I'm doing my one person show at UCB theater. And I was like, Oh my God, that's awesome. That's like five minutes away from my house. I'd love to come see it. That sounds great. And so I did. And I came backstage after the show and I was like, you were really great. That was awesome. You know, it was, there were 20 people in the audience. Right. And she's like, Oh, I'm so excited. I got an, I have an audition tomorrow for the office. And I said, well, I think you're going to get it because you are perfect for that show. And this is like a perfect showcase for you. And the rest, as they say, is history. That is crazy. Suffice to say, I do remember when I saw her next. You do remember her. <laughs> I, I assume you were asked, I don't know if by her, how did it come to be that, well, you played her captor then on Kimmy Schmidt years later. Did you keep in touch before then? <laughs> well, yeah, actually, we had done Bridesmaids together. Oh, um, right. So right, we course. had that sort of meeting again. And I remember being on the red carpet for that movie and looking over at Ellie. And she caught my eye and I was like, this is so weird. And we both kind of <laughs> laughed and, and I think we gave each other a hug. And I was just like, I can't believe you're, I'm like standing next to you on a red carpet at a major motion picture that we're both in. Right. That's going to be a huge hit. 
we didn't know at the time, but going to be sort of a cultural touch point for yeah. for many people. But it was nice to to say the least. But yes, I had kept up with her, and obviously because I I knew a lot of you guys on the Office too. So like people maybe don't know this, but like you know the the awards show kind of swirl, you know, had us in it for quite a few years, us being Mad Men and then also The Office and 30 Rock. And so we would see each other at a couple of occasions every um, every year for quite a few years. So I would run into her at those things as well as you and right. BJ and Mindy and Tina and Robert Carlock and all the 30 Rock gang. And and that's when I did the stretch I did on 30 Rock. Yeah. After 30 Rock ended, that's when Tina and Robert said, hey, we're, we're kicking around this idea. We really wanted to develop this thing for Ellie would you take a look at it and would you consider it? And I was like, I don't know if I really want to be a, go back right into series television. They're like, no, no, no. You're in like one episode a year. I was like, oh, okay. That's <laughs> first of all, how dare you? Second of all, uh, <laughs> let's, let's, take, let's take a look at it. And they were like, well, let's, let us come pitch it to you. And I was like, okay. Right. At that stage of it, it was a pilot. And the pilot was called Tooken, T-O-O-K-E-N. Okay. I was like, okay, what, what? And they're like, okay, you play a guy who kidnapped four women and kept them in an underground bunker. And like, and it was literally like, let me finish, but it's funny. <laughs> I was like, so I was like, I mean, I trust you guys, but I mean, really? Like a lot of weird stuff had just come out about people. And I was like, I don't know, man, I, I, I'm not sure I find the funny in this, but then I read it and I was like, oh, it's really funny. And it's about the only way you get away with that is by playing this person as a complete and utter buffoon yeah, and totally out of the realm of believability. And it was really fun. I mean, playing that guy was so silly and so dumb, but so fun because it was so like Robert Carlock, who wrote the majority of the Reverend stuff, just got that dumb energy of like, it's, it's not even toxic masculinity. It's just stupid masculinity. <laughs> it was really fun to do. And yeah, I mean, it went for forever and we got to do that really fun Netflix choose your own adventure kind of thing. Yeah. And it was really great. I was really, really pleased with how it grew and how it ended and how it developed Titus's character and Carol Kane's character. Like it was just like the best of shows, like your show. It became like watching a family grow and like, you watch the characters kind of go through their own stuff and you watch them figure their own stuff out. And by the end of it, they're better. Yeah. Well said. So let's go back. You're teaching at John Burroughs. When did you make the decision that you needed to go to LA? I remember they had asked me to consider doing another year at the school. Um, and I was like, well, I don't know guys. Like, I think I want to try to see what, can happen with this. And I just remember having this thought of like, well, I'm getting kind of old. <laughs> 24. 24, right. Yeah. I'm like I'm getting a little long in the tooth. <laughs> Which by the way, nowadays is actually true. Like if you're not famous by 14 on right. TikTok, give it up. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Don't. Please yes. don't. And also don't get famous on TikTok. Yeah. But I was I just had a sense of like, well, if not now, when and I could definitely see inertia settling in if I didn't at least try. Right. And I remember one of my acting teachers a long time ago, even actually the guy I went and taught underneath at Burroughs, said like, hey, what's the worst thing that can happen if you try? You fail. So then fail again and fail better. <laughs> I was like, yeah, okay. That seems like pretty good advice. And it is. Like it really is like – I really think, especially nowadays, and especially how uncertain everything seems with the pandemic, with the complete devastation of social norms, as it seems over the last few years, mm -hmm. I think the idea of failing is so terrifying to people. And, it, and in reality, you're kind of like, and then, you know, what'll happen? Like, you'll fail at something and then the sun's going to rise and you're going to get up and go get another job or not, or, right. you know, you're going to make it work. It's not climbing Mount Everest every time. Sometimes it's just walking up a hill and you just have to put one foot in front of another. And then all of a sudden you look back and you're like, look how far I've come. Like, this is actually impressive. I'm impressed with myself. Right. It is. You deserve credit though. I, what do they say? A bird in a hand, like leaving something 
especially when you're in this business where it's so hard to get work, it's difficult to leave. I mean, you were 24. I mean, it took me to 28. I was working in the theater and I was like, yeah, I want to go to LA. I want to go to LA, but I have this job. It's really hard to say, no, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to LA and leaving opportunities that you have is it's difficult. Well, I think there are, there are inflection points, right? Obviously. And we all have them. Some of them happen earlier for us and some of them happen later. And I think the idea is in the best case scenario, and I think you can probably attest to this as well, having the ability to identify them, right? So when you get an opportunity, you say, okay, this is an opportunity. Like, I really want to take advantage of this. And I remember, God, I mean, when I came out here, I auditioned for everything and I got nothing. I was an extra in the pilot of the TV show, The Practice. You know, I was up for uh, deep impact. I didn't get it. John Favreau got it. And it was just one of those things of like coming so close to something and not getting it. It's coming so close to something and not getting it. And that happened over and over and over and over again. And I had success and I had a couple of things that I got and I was kind of climbing up that hill of loose gravel and sliding down and climbing back up and sliding down. Right. But then I remember when Mad Men came around, I was like, oh, this is like an inflection point. This is an actual thing that I could really do and really do well. And I think that I need to identify, like, I, I have to like call it out and I have to be, I have to get this. I just have to. I'm not a big like believer in the secret or, you know, manifesting your destiny or whatever. The, right. But I was very much aware that I really did in a way that I hadn't identified any of these other opportunities or options that I really thought this was right for me. If you're a smoker or dipper looking to make a change, you really only need one reason to do it. But with Zen nicotine pouches, you can find many. Not only did Zen create the first ever nicotine pouch, we're still America's number one choice for smoke-free, spit-free nicotine satisfaction. It could be because Zen is made with only six simple ingredients, including naturally derived nicotine salt. Or maybe it's because Zen is the only nicotine pouch with a 10-day trial. For anyone worried Zen won't cut it like traditional tobacco, just ask one of the millions of people who have achieved lasting change. You have lots of options when it comes to nicotine satisfaction, but there's only one Zen. Find your Zen online or in a store near you at zen.com slash find. That's zyn.com slash find. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. All right, folks, next up is the first of the pens. 
that you'll hear from today on why he almost didn't take a role that would change his life trajectory, which, if you listen to this full episode, would not be the last time that he would begrudgingly take on an amazing role. Here he is to tell you all about it, the incredible, my new bestie, Penn Badgley. I'm not kidding. I was ready to hang it up before I took Gossip Girl. I had been doing television for so long. Really? And was already so disillusioned with the process. I had done so many shows, series leads, series that had all gone to series, not just pilots that had then failed and been canceled. We try to get that back nine, you know what I mean? Right. You know the first season of The Office. You, right. know, you know how the struggle it can be to, yes. to, to, to get a show to make it. And I was just like, you know, I can't do TV anymore. I just can't. And that's why when Gossip Girl came along, I, I initially did say no. But anyway, sorry, you can you No, so you, you, so no, so you, 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 the opportunity for Gossip Girl comes and you say no. Yeah, I mean, so, so the, so the co-creator, Stephanie Savage, she actually asked me, she emailed me the script and she said, you know, I feel like you will have already, she, her words in my memory are, I think that you will feel like you've already done this which is play the floppy-haired, awkward kid. Okay. Because that's what I had done on the show we'd worked together on like two or three years previous. When I was 17 years old, I lived in Vancouver for about six months on a show called um, The Mountain, where I was playing this young professional snowboarder and a show that was basically like, the, the pitch was it was Dynasty on a Mountain. Okay. And she co-created that show with Mick G, who at the time was huge with the OC and all this stuff. Yep. Uh, so then she and Josh Schwartz got together to to make Gossip Girl, and um, she emails me the concept, the script, and was like, "I I would really love you to look at at Dan, even though I feel like you you'll probably not want to do it." And I read it, and I said, "Thank you," and you're right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, thank you for thinking of me, but right. respectfully, like, yeah, this is just not what I'm interested in doing right now. And the opportunity went away, and they cast everybody else. Couldn't find who they thought was Dan. Um, she comes back and sort of gives me a little bit of a a plea. Not, I mean, plea maybe sounds not. It wasn't like desperate. It was more like it. she she pitched me on the idea that I was Dan, and um, I ultimately was sold on it and and said yes. Why? What made you change your mind? Um. Honestly, something that did not even pan out. Like, I don't feel like she was, she, she meant what she said, but what she said was that she was interested in the fact that he was like the sort of moral center of the show, like a sort of male lead of the show, I think at its outset. And she was sort of pitching me on like this idea that three years prior, I'd done a show where I started out in a, in a, in a recurring role. And then that role became slowly kind of the heart of how she saw the show. That it became, I was in every episode, I think, in the end. And by the end, I was like a, a really a, a main character. And she was like, you know, think about that's that was the arc with your last guy, you know. And I'd done another series of Warner Brothers since then. And actually, he was in college. So I was taking a step back into high school. And at 20 years old, I was like, I'm a high schooler? Are you kidding me? Like, I'm... Like, like my sideburns are down to my jaw. I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm not like, you know, all I want to do is I graduated at 13. Right. <laughs> I've never even been to high school. <laughs> and I honestly was just, I just so wanted to play other things and other people and, and, and other ideas. Uh, but she kind of had this idea. She was like, you know, this time you'll be starting out as the sort of heart of the show and, you know, just think of where it can go from there. And, and what's interesting about Gossip Girl, and I say this as a witness, not as like a, I think I took it personally initially and I, and I complained as a youngin, but what I see it now and just, just purely with detachment and, and like, you know, distance and time, the whole point of Gossip Girl was that Dan was not meant to, he was not the heart. Like the show wasn't so concerned with having a heart. It was concerned with this aspirational, as we say, this sort of fantasy of of the of the elite, you know, of the of the glamorous, of which basically doesn't exist, you know, but it but yeah, it's this like fantasy life of youth, and and actually in Chuck and Blair, who I think very quickly became the clear heart or hearts of the show or the bivalve heart of the show, the whole point was that they were not moral. The whole point was that they were. They weren't immoral, but they were amoral. They were sort of like they did what served them. And at the end of the day, because they were portrayed by two talented actors, those characters had such depth and such range. Because actually, when you play people who are, who are not sure about what's right, you ultimately get a more compelling story. And I mean, that's why, you know, 
years later, I'm playing a serial killer and people haven't ever responded more positively, <laughs> you know? And I think that's a sign of like the sort of stories that we're interested in and what we get from stories. It's actually very hard to tell a story about a moral center. It's, mm. it's, I'm not saying that it's not a good story. I'm not saying it's not worth trying, but I'm saying that it's currently we live in an age where it's, it's more compelling off the bat to tell a story about a bad person who's trying, who's trying, because I think we can identify more readily with that visceral level of struggle. A hundred percent. And people also don't want to be told what's, yeah, exactly. What is right. Yeah. Yeah. Actually that this never worked with anybody. So (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Then it becomes preaching. Well, exactly. And I think in some sense, Dan, coupled with the way that I unconsciously played him, uh, became uh, righteous and annoying, you know, and, and that's, and that makes sense. At least uh, I'll say this. I think true stands of Gossip Girl usually seem to align with the Chuck and Blair kind of like thing. And that's that I do think it's really seems to me like I remember when it happened the first season it was episode six. They were the kind of unexpected relationship that then just worked. And then it became the heart of the show, really. And and I think that no one anticipated that, but it, it was a sign of the times. It was like, ah, and a sign of what you just said, which is like, you can't start out with somebody who's who's like always right or something, or who and who always thinks that they're good and then just complains about how no one else is as good as them. That's not that's not as interesting. It's not and it's not it's actually not humble in the end. Did you view yourself as the outsider? On the show. In life? On no, the show. On the show. Did I view Dan as the outsider? As Dan as the outsider. Uh, I mean, that's who he's identified as. But to me, the joke is always like, bro, how much more on the inside could you be? You're just not in the deepest of the inner circle, but you're in the same school. You're you're a you're a white boy. You know, you 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 know, your dad was a rock star and you live in a three million dollar apartment rather than a thirty million dollar mansion. So like if you think you're on the outside, Dan Humphrey, I'm sorry, but you have a lot of learning to do. <laughs> you just aren't literally inside the inside of the inside. You're just on the outskirt of the inside, you know. So Okay. All right. It's true. I'm sure many of us would be a okay with the $3 million apartment in Brooklyn. My next guest also played a very memorable character, although he was not quite as on the inside of the inside or the outskirt of the inside. Wait, I'm, I'm getting complicated. Either way, here's Lamorne Morris on his experience playing Winston on New Girl. I got to say, writers on, on New Girl, geniuses because they would look at the bits in between stuff and figure out what was funny, the improvised stuff. And they would go, let's tailor it towards that. And they would write the most ridiculous stuff for my character. And it worked. And I loved it. Every, Every episode felt like a sketch comedy show to me because I didn't know what character trait I had that week. And, you know, one week my character is a professional, former professional basketball player. The next week he has thin fingers and he can't carry anything. <laughs> next week he constantly <laughs> has erections for some reason. Like, it's like, what? <laughs> so it was funny. It was fun. It was a fun, fun show to do for sure. After the second season for me. When you felt like they figured out who you were. And we're able to play into what you felt like your strength was. Yeah. And once I knew I wasn't going to get fired, I was just more comfortable going to work every day. <laughs> I was like, okay. Why did you think you were going to be fired? Was there anything specifically that happened? I thought I was underperforming, to be quite honest with you. I knew what I was capable of doing, but I would leave set every day going, I didn't do what I wanted to do. And they don't know that I have this weird energy that I could perform, this level that I could perform at. I don't think, they, I don't think I've done it yet. And I would watch the episodes back and sometimes I'd cringe at them and I, would, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's any good. It's very insecure. I was extremely insecure. And, you know, my castmates, obviously, and the producers would kind of reassure me, like, you're not going anywhere. But, you know, <laughs> I know how this business is. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and, and they were very gracious. They gave me a lot of room to, to grow. I, th- I think we're all glad it, it happened that way because it was just another piece to, I think, the otherwise perfect cast. Everybody on the show is clicking on all cylinders from day one, and I was trying to find my footing. Yeah. I feel like there's, in a lot of ways, a similarity between The Office and New Girl in terms of mm-hmm. this sort of 
disparate collection of characters that are that find themselves together and form this sort of pseudo family in a way, right? Is that yeah. is that a stretch? Not a stretch at all. Not a stretch at all. It's like no matter what office you go into, to them in that office, they're this you have a story about a guy who acts this way or, oh, I know this woman, she behaves this way and you wouldn't believe it until you saw it, you know? And then The Office is a heightened version of what people can identify with all the characters on the show. And I think that's the same way with New Girl is that people, these people who live together and everyone has a story about my roommate does this or he wears a kimono at night and you go, no, no, he doesn't. And then you watch New Girl and you, people go, yeah, look, that, that's, they wrote that about me, you know. Right. It's, uh, you know, it's a weird group of people that have a common bond and, you know, and they, and they stick it out and they stick together. And I think the reason why our shows resonated is because, and lasted for so long, is because people at home felt connected to the characters. Right. No, for sure. Yeah. When did you realize that the show was taking off? It was going to... You know, after you after you found your own personal security in terms of your job security, when did you feel like, oh no, we're gonna we're gonna be around for a while? Do you remember? Was there a moment? There were a few. I gotta say, once people started knowing my name on the street, okay, because people people always they still to this day call me Winston from New York, right. Winston, Winston, it's constant. But the moment people would go, Mister Morris, Lamorne, Lamorne, can I get a photo? And I thought. My God, they looked up my name. <laughs> like they, they, you know, people are invested. In, it's like sometimes you'll watch a TV show and then you'll just go on to the next. Some of my favorite shows, I couldn't tell you the actors' real names, right? You know, and I, now I can, you know, because we're in the business now. But like, it's one of those things where you're walking down the street, somebody says your name, and it hits you. Like, my goodness, that's what they know me from. It must, it must be working. And right. when you would read, I'm not supposed to read comments, but I read them. And when you see so many, whether they're good or bad, I go, there's a conversation around an episode that we did. And you go, oh, people care. People are truly <laughs> invested. Then you see fan fiction, you know, right. <laughs> about, right. about your show. And you're like, whoa, <laughs> people are disgusting, but also <laughs> invested. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, have you ever played True American? I have. I played you have. True American. Yeah, but on accident kind of. I was it was a party going on in Hollywood and we walked past it. And you know, people recognized me and they were like, You'll never believe what we're doing over here. We're playing True American. And I, I reached out to the guy, we exchanged Instagrams afterwards, and I've been re- I've been talking to him lately, like, where are the photos that I'm in? He's like, I was trying to keep you out of them because I didn't want to be that guy, you <laughs> know, be that paparazzi guy while you're partying. But I even posted some photos on my Instagram back then. They were literally having a full-on true American party in their front yard. That's amazing. Like standing on chairs, doing bits, and you know, screaming JFK, FDR. It was a whole thing, which also blew my mind. To this day, it still blows my mind. (laughs) Right, a drinking game with no rules. You know. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) I went uh, in prep. This is not a joke. I was like, oh yeah, that true American, and I got online to try to Mm -hmm. ascertain and figure out what the rules were. Mm-hmm. Reading the description of True American, by the way, a drinking game from New Girl, left me more confused <laughs> than I thought that I was to start with. So I don't know if that's a good thing or yes. a bad thing, but that's that's the point. That's the point. Because if there are all those beers, you're gonna be confused at the end of the night. You're gonna <laughs> you're ask yourself, gonna why did I do this? <laughs> why? Why right. me? I uh one of the things that happened on the office. It was intentional. Greg Daniels, our showrunner, had come from mm-hmm. Saturday Night Live. And from the very beginning, he felt like the ensemble experience was incredibly important, but the ensemble experience, not just amongst the actors, amongst everyone. And so he had writers mm-hmm. who were actors and actors who were writers. And I know on New Girl, you guys had a similar experience. You wrote an episode, you directed an episode. Mm-hmm. Was that you or was that a part of the culture you, you feel like that, that was created on the show? A little, a little of both. Okay. Liz Merriweather is very, she asks a lot of questions and loves hearing stories about your personal life and incorporating things that you may have done. And, you know, that's a testament to all the writers as well. They just, you know, they want to know. And they, they all know and knew that I had aspirations to direct and to write. You know, I would always have ideas on set as actors. We're always pitching ideas, mm-hmm. character storylines. 
my whole the whole Winston being a police officer was my idea. And then writing the episode came because of that. Okay. The episode that I wrote was about my character being being new to the force, but then meeting this woman that he really liked and was vibing with. And then she finds out that she's protesting the police. And so he's like, oh. So he's now doesn't know if he's ashamed to be a cop or if he should be proud to be a cop. He doesn't know. And so he's a black police officer, you know? So he's like, uh, wait, you know? And that came from Twitter. So on the show, my character is named Ferguson. And at the time, there was a lot of civil unrest based off what happened in Ferguson. And people started tweeting me. They were like, oh, how's it feel to play a black cop with a cat named Ferguson in these times? And I was like, God damn it. If I get one more tweet about this. And people started really asking me. Questions went from being funny to right. serious. Like, nah, brother, you got to speak up. What do you think about this? And I was like, I'm just an actor, but okay. Uh, so I went to Liz Merriweather because I genuinely started feeling uncomfortable. I asked her if I could address it on the show. And so she said, why don't you write an episode? So she paired me with Rob Rosell, one of our fantastic writer-producers, and we came up with an episode. And we addressed it in, the, in, a, in a, a way, you know, a very network TV funny kind of way. But we still put some light on it and what could possibly go through a police officer's head in that moment right. when he does meet someone like that, you know, in these times that we're living in. So that was the reason why I wrote that one. But it was, for her, it was like, please do it. And then directing, they just asked, hey, do you want to direct? Right. <laughs> Damn right I do, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and that was easy. That was a, that, that, I want to say it's easy. It, it, the process was a lot more difficult than I thought it would be. But on set, the, everyone was so, everyone except for Max Greenfield, everyone besides Max Greenfield was so kind. Max, <laughs> Max was intentionally a dick. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I had that too. Rain Wilson, yeah, I know. Yeah, makes it just yep. yeah, was he being just to make it yeah, just to make it difficult, <laughs> just to make it difficult. Yeah, oh, uh, just take that whatever the little maybe the teeniest amount of insecurity you might have and just just twist it in. Yep, it is. Oh, it, it it even though you know they love you and they're messing with you, it's still. It works. What they're doing is working. I'm, I'm oh, yeah. getting more and more insecure as the day goes on. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> my in over my head. <laughs> you brought up Ferguson. Are you a cat guy? Um, this is going to disappoint a lot of people. No. In fact, hell no. <laughs> cat guy. I, you know, I, I don't mind. I don't mind cats anymore. When I was younger, my buddy used to have a bunch of cats. And one of them, when it was a kitten, he said, oh, it's Buttercup. Hold Buttercup. I said, oh, hey, Buttercup, you're so adorable. And we had just got through playing basketball, so I had no shirt on. Buttercup goes and attaches to my chest and slides down and cuts up my chest on its way down. Because it was too fast. You didn't see it coming. You couldn't <laughs> yeah. have stopped this attack if you tried. Cats are super quick and sneaky. I don't trust them. At least with dogs, they're loud and you know they're coming. You know they're coming. This one, mm-mm. If you're a smoker or dipper looking to make a change, you really only need one reason to do it. But with Zen Nicotine Pouches, you can find many. Not only did Zen create the first ever nicotine pouch, we're still America's number one choice for smoke-free, spit-free nicotine satisfaction. It could be because Zen is made with only six simple ingredients, including naturally derived nicotine salt. Or maybe it's because Zinn is the only nicotine pouch with a 10-day trial. For anyone worried Zinn won't cut it like traditional tobacco, just ask one of the millions of people who have achieved lasting change. You have lots of options when it comes to nicotine satisfaction, but there's only one Zinn. Find your Zinn online or in a store near you at zinn.com find. That's zyn.com find. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. My next guest is an actor I have admired now for quite some time. He has truly mastered the art of transforming into his characters by using entirely different voices, entirely different physicalities. He's played fictional characters, yes, but also real-life people that we all know, yet he has managed to convince us that he has become them. When he stopped by, he gave us a little insight into just how he does it. Here he is, Paul Walter Hauser. I, I, I knew that there were good people in Hollywood. That was the vibe I got because, you know, when you grow up a, in a ultra conservative setting and you're highly religious, it's, it's easy to fall into this thing of believing that Hollywood is, uh, is this really awful place with all these awful people. And it's like, I think it's a place full of a bunch of real regular people, but it just so happens that egos and greed and things play in a little bit more aggressively in our business than say people that work for TurboTax, you know, it's a, <laughs> it just happens to be an environment that plays on the, uh, the generational, you know, cyclical sins we as humans all incur and then sometimes rewards them or doesn't slap wrists for some of them. And, and that's its own thing. But yeah, no, I I would say that I learned that you can work with wonderful people in Hollywood. I learned to not be afraid to improvise. My whole thing was I'm not going to ask permission. I'm going to ask forgiveness. At that time, especially, I was obsessed with the Christopher Guest mockumentaries like Waiting for Guffman. And my whole thing was I'm going to be one of those actors. I'm not going to try to be Robert De Niro. I'll never be De Niro. I can't be De Niro. But you bet your ass I can be Ed Begley Jr. You bet right. your ass I can be Fred Willard. And I went into it like that, and I was rewarded for it. Lance Black, who had an Oscar for writing, is telling me he loves my improv. So right. like that gave me a lot of confidence and let me know my my true north as a performer will always be to, to go with my gut instincts. I mean, you talked early on about standing up and doing impressions of family members or big movie stars of the day, Jack, et cetera. Do you feel like that influenced you in terms of creating characters, making vocal and physical choices? Is that something that was always interesting to you? Yeah, I, I was, I was sitting at brunch today with our buddies. My wife and I were sitting down with Ray and Deb Giratana. They're, they're like a, power couple of of they do everything from visual effects to directing to their daughters and actress like wonderful people and we're talking and they said how did you pick up on all these weird characteristics to and choices to make for playing larry hall and blackbird and, you know the answer i gave them was just i love watching people 
if I'm in an airport and I have 45 minutes to wait around for my flight, I'm not really begrudging or bemoaning it. It's an opportunity for me to pause and watch Total Strangers. This guy pulls out his sandwich from Arby's and he starts eating. Oh, I notice he's eating with the wrapper half on the sandwich because he doesn't want to get his hands dirty. But then he gets Arby's sauce on his fingers, licks his fingers, and wipes them on his pants. So clearly being sanitary doesn't matter to him. You know, it's it's about finding all the little things and all the little people and making up stories in your head of that old improv rule, if this is true, what else is true? Right. And and those characteristics speak to greater things, both about humanity or the person in particular. So I once again, that's me that's me kind of ranting, but also saying that being analytical about the pieces that make up people, you know, it's just being a journalist. If you can be a journalist of humanity and then try to emulate those things, you're a great actor. It doesn't mean you're Daniel Day-Lewis or Viola Davis. It means that you pay attention. And any of us have that ability. It's not like it's a me thing. It's, it's a human thing. Yeah. That's what I feel like a huge part of my job is understanding and observing human behavior and that being able to unlock that behavior can very often unlock the the physicality the the voice the everything of a character there's something really communal about the experience of watching film and tv you know people sometimes want to compliment me and say wow you how did you do that character and i'm like i was doing you you're how i did that character you know it's it's not as crazy or complex as people would think if you can have the fearlessness and specificity to to dive into those things that you've experienced. That role Tom Cruise played in Tropic Thunder, people are obsessed with that, you know? They're like, man, Tom Cruise. And it's like, he's really, he's doing what Dwayne Johnson did in the WWE, where he's taking some piece of him and then amplifying it to a psychotic degree that makes it entertaining. Tom Cruise, like many humans, has an ego. What if you took that anger and ego and amplified it to a billion? You have less Grossman, you know? doesn't mean Tom's a bad guy. It means that we all have some ugly and some sin and some truth and reality to us. And if we choose to go 90 on a detour, that's what less Grossman looks like. Well, Paul, it's hard not to compliment you on your character development. The work that you have been doing the last few years is, well, it's awesome. And hey. I'd, I'd love to see how you would maybe take on the role of one of the world's most famous magicians. Like, oh, I don't know, maybe my next guest, Penn Gillette of Penn and Teller. I mean, to say that this man has lived a thousand lives would be an understatement. Our conversation was indeed one of the most surprising yet fascinating conversations that I have had this year. Here's just a small taste. When he tells the story of how a fever dream turned into a creative opportunity. I was touring with an avant-garde band called The Residents yeah. out of San Francisco. I was touring their opera in 1981 as the narrator. And in Barcelona, Spain, I got wicked sick and taken to a a Barcelona hospital, which in 1981 were not the best hospitals in the world, where nobody knew where I where I was because I had been taken to the in an ambulance when no one from the crew was watching. Right. I spoke at the time no Spanish. The doctors spoke no English. I had a fever that I only saw in centigrade, but was wicked high. I was hallucinating out of my mind. And all I thought about was if one of these doctors could just feel the pain without me having to talk, they could diagnose it and fix me. Hmm. In a fever dream, an actual fever dream, I imagined the whole story of The Pain Addict, which is my original short story that I published. And I, uh, I was taken out of that hospital by one of the band members who was a tough American who just said, get your fucking hands off them. We're Americans. 
get your fucking hands off him. Come on, Penn. And carried me out of the hospital and left me in a hotel room in Barcelona for three days with a dancer who was left to take care of me uh, until I got better and joined, rejoined the troupe. Then many, many years later, I got to meet Charlie through a mutual friend in England. We went out for lunch and uh, we were having a wonderful time. And I said to him, you know, I don't want to turn this into a business meeting. I'm sure everybody pitches you. He said, Bob, Bob, I have been out of ideas for two years. Tell me anything. <laughs> and I told him the story idea and he went, geez, that, that'd be really good. And then he said to me, listen, let me tell you about me as a collaborator. I don't answer the phone. I don't answer texts. I don't answer emails. I will tell you we're doing something. Then you will hear nothing about it for three months. Then I'll call you and talk for two hours. I will leave you out of the process. I'll throw things on your shoulders. I am the worst person to work with in the world, but I'd like to do this. I said, good. I called them, said, we're going to work on this. Nothing. <laughs> Six weeks later, he called me, talked for three hours and said, I'll send you a script and you can make notes on it. I said, great. I have some other notes on stuff we've been talking about. This will be great. I'll send you my notes. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Um, then he sent me the script. Eight months later, he sent me the script. I called him up. He answered and said, we're shooting next week. I said, I have some thoughts. He said, I'm sure you do. We're shooting next week. <laughs> I said, you know, I really wanted to audition for one of the roles. He said, I'm sure you did. It's cast. <laughs> I said, what, what is the credit? And he said, you'll be happy. He then gave me a fabulous credit and overpaid me. And okay. my agent said, we're going to call him and negotiate the fee. We're sure we can get him up from here. And I said, listen. For one time in show business, someone has paid me more than fairly. Right. I think we should reward this behavior and say, thank you. Yes. And it came out and people gave me all this credit and said, oh, it was your original story. And I said, yes, but a lot of what makes it good was not done by me, but thank you. Oh, that's amazing. I love that. <laughs> He's I will now say he's the best person to work with you could ever work with. Right. Makes you work not at all, gives you more credit, pays you well, goes away. Oh, that's amazing. And no, no email or call saying that came out okay, or I did a good job, didn't I? Nothing. <laughs> we went out to dinner afterwards when I was in Britain, and he said, yeah, that went well. And that was the entire amount we talked about it. Oh, my gosh. Penn, thank you so much for joining us. Hilarious, insightful, and I cannot wait to come to Vegas and see your show with Teller in the new year. Listeners, we're closing out the year with the wonderful Danica McKellar, who, of course, played Winnie Cooper on The Wonder Years. The conversation, absolutely heartwarming. So as a little inspiration, for the new year, I'll let her tell you all about how her family managed to balance work and play so well. I read that both you and your sister were up for the role yes. of Winnie Cooper. Now, was this did this cause issues when you got cast with the family was, at home? And it was just a one-time role. It wasn't like a big deal role that I got. Right. It was, you know, so it was a, it was a one-off. But they loved her so much. They said they were going to write a role for her, and they did. She played Becky Slater. She did, I think, nine or ten episodes. That's awesome. Yeah. So because you weren't auditioning for serious roles, right. this ends up becoming a really big deal for you. Do you remember anything about the audition? Uh, yes. I remember well, I remember we auditioned on a Thursday, callbacks for that Friday. And I remember there was like a group of, of girls all reading for the part of Winnie Cooper, including me and my sister. And the room got smaller and smaller. They kept having us come in and read again. And they said, okay, we're taking a dinner break. You come back and you're going to read with Fred Savage, the 
the boy who's playing the lead after dinner. I was like, okay. So we all went to dinner. And there was a restaurant down below the Studio City. And uh, I remember seeing Fred and wondering if that was the kid. And I was like, oh, he's cute. I wonder if he's the guy who I'll be reading with. And it was. I'm not sure I've ever said in this in an interview, but the, it came down to the three of us, me and my sister and this actress, I don't know her name, but she ended up with like a couple lines in the pilot episode. She's the girl, for people who are super fans of The Wonder Years, Kevin is talking about love at, you know, junior high. And there's this couple who's holding hands across his desk saying, I love you. I love you too. And she was one of, she was one of the three of us who, uh, were the final contenders for Winnie Cooper. So of the three of us who were sitting there reading with Fred after dinner, we all ended up with roles on the show. With roles on the show. That's yeah. awesome. That I love. That's a BTS, everybody. That's a behind the scenes uh, nugget. Um, I did talk for a while to, to Daniel Fischel about what I understand is the same with you, that your, your first kiss was on camera yes. with Fred. <laughs> In the pilot, how did that bring some extra nerves oh, for yeah. you? Well, especially because at the time I had a huge crush on him and I was just like so excited and so nervous. And I still remember after the first take when they said cut, the whole crew started applauding. And I don't know who started that, but it was mortifying. I mean, you can only imagine all the nerves, the anticipation. You know, you're about to have your first kiss. You've got a crush on the guy, you know, and then it finally happens. And it's the most amazing moment ever. And it's like... <laughs> <laughs> Wait, that wasn't a private. That wasn't real. That wasn't, oh, okay, right. Yeah. <laughs> did you did you think for the rest of your life every time you kissed someone that would it would break out in applause all around you? Well, I remember when I had my first real kiss. Right. It was two years, no, a year and a half later, uh, with Jeremy Miller, by the way, who was the little boy on Growing Pains. Yes. That was my first kiss. He was my first little boyfriend. Wow. I was 14 and he was 13. Okay. And and uh, it was actually at my dad's house in La Jolla. Okay. They were, they, were, they were down there for some reason. And so we all hung out and then we were at my dad's house and we had a moment alone. And, and I remember thinking, wait, is this going to be my first kiss? And it was like, oh, this is so different because I don't know. Oh, right. shooting, you know. It's, it's, not, it's not scripted. It's not scripted. It may or may not happen. Yeah. <laughs> So that was, uh, um, yeah, so no, I didn't think there were going to be cameras, but I was like stunned at how odd it felt to not actually know how it was going to go down. How it was going <laughs> to go down. Yes. yes. Um, you are on the wonder years, basically your entire teenage years, right? Yes. Yeah. 12 to 18. What was it like for you growing up in, and this is a huge show at this time and everybody is talking about it and everybody is talking about you and, and about. Fred at the time, what was it like for you growing up in the spotlight with all of that attention during what for most is awkward teenage years? Yeah. I was not in touch with it. And okay. that's the truth. I was not in touch with it at all. At some point, some point, I think I was probably 16 and, and someone on set referred to me as America's sweetheart. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? Like I, I just, I was very busy with school and work and family life. And my mom, my both my parents always emphasized the importance of basically everything over showbiz. So health, family, school, and then sure, showbiz. But that's that was the priority scheme. In fact, when the Wonder Years got nominated for the first time for an Emmy, in fact, we won that year. I wasn't there because there was a river trip, like a river rafting trip scheduled with my dad and my sister. That, and he had a really busy work schedule and we couldn't move it. And so we went on the trip. I mean, and it was kind of a, it was like, well, we have this invitation. We could go to the Emmys or we could go on this River rafting trip. My parents decided together, no, the trip is more important. And I remember being in this tiny little motel room in Oregon. We're going to get in the Rogue River the next day. And it was like a TV from the 1970s. I don't know where this tiny little screen. And we watched the Wonder Years win the Emmy. And we jumped up and down the bed. And we're like, yay, we won. And we went to sleep, got up at like five in the morning and hit the river and had the trip of our lives. I mean, I remember picking blackberries on the side of the river with my dad and my sister. And it's some of the most precious memories. So that kind of thing, you know, that's that was my life. Well, folks, there you have it. As evidenced by this week's episode, there's not much I like more than some precious memories. So thank you all for this incredible year. I cannot wait for you to see what we have in store for 2023. To put it lightly, well, it's going to be freaking awesome. I hope you round out your year with some love, some laughs, 
and whatever it is you like doing the most. I'll see you next year with, well, with another pretty cool guest, if I do say so myself. So get ready to make some brand new memories. Happy New Year, everyone. Off the Beat is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Ling Lee. Our senior producer is Diego Tapia. Our producers are Liz Hayes, Hannah Harris, and Emily Carr. Our talent producer is Ryan, Papa Zachary, and our intern is Sammy Katz. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by the one and only Creed Bratton. The journey to a smoke-free future can be a long and winding road. But if you're ready for a change, consider taking Zinn for a spin. Zinn nicotine pouches offer a fresh way to discover your nicotine satisfaction. Anywhere, anytime. No smoke, no spit, and no lingering odor. Get in gear with the Zinn 10 Challenge and enjoy 10 smoke-free, spit-free days for just $5.95. Order online and start your new journey today. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.